Oh boy. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. That's an endorsement. <clears throat> and uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Glad to be a church family together. Always a joy to gather um, as a church to worship the Lord and to be a church, to be reminded that we are tied to something big, something huge, something universal and global and timeless, and that we are not uh, small and lonely at all. There's great things going on in the world because our God is huge and He's doing them. If you're joining us online, it's a joy to have you with us as well. Thanks for joining us there. Uh, I'd like to let you know that we are very much near the end of our series in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, this week and next week will be the last two sermons in the series for, um, well, for the, for the foreseeable future. We're probably not coming back to Jeremiah for a while. And in fact, we're going to look at the same passage two weeks in a row. Uh, because it's so, I'd always intended to land on this passage. This is the place we wanted to end, and there's a lot of things to say about it. So I'm excited to be able to uh, have this opportunity to talk about this together. So um, before I get to that, last week I got to talk about how to read the Old Testament and the New Testament together, and I want to take a few minutes again today to talk about how we read our Bibles, or maybe how not to read and not to quote the Bible. And our passage today contains one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and one of, with it, one of the most quoted verses you'll hear from the Bible, and this is a great opportunity to talk about how to quote or not uh, the Bible in certain contexts. So let's begin with some preliminaries. First thing to say, Bible reading is good, really good. I want you to read your Bibles. I think it's fantastic. And I think reading our Bibles is a hugely important aspect of how God implants his thoughts into us, gets us in line with his thinking, brings us together around important things. Scripture memorization is also really good. It's really good to memorize Bible verses. I have to admit, I am personally terrible at it. I will forget my own name if some of you don't speak it to me. I can't keep things in my head. I only remember, I've, I've, I've spent hours memorizing things and they, whoo, they vanish. So I'm telling you, do as I say, not as I, do. no, I try it, I just fail. That's not it. And I, I just recognize how good it is. I've met people who have the entire Bible memorized. You can say, give me Ephesians 3.14 and they've got it, right? And these people are next level. I'm not, I'm not saying that if you do that, tell you what, if you do that, I definitely will bake you a cookie. But um, it's very, very amazing to see these things. Now, there's a lot to understand in God's Word, because of course there's a lot of it. There's a ton of information here. I'm recommending that you read, recommending you study. But God is faithful to speak through the Word to us at whatever level we are. It can get really intimidating, right? I mean, I've got three degrees, almost all three of them in some form of theology, right? I have a bachelor's degree in Greek and Latin so I could read the Bible. I have a master's degree in divinity. No one calls me divine master. It's really depressing sometimes, right? <laughs> I have a PhD in theology. Do you have to be like me in order to read the Bible? No. No, I don't think that's the case at all uh, because God's word is, is written in such a way that at what, whatever level you approach it, it's fruitful. It's going to give something to you. But the further along you go in your Christian journey, the more you're going to get out of it and the more studies required of you and you're going to learn more things and you'll be challenged and transformed in fresh ways. So if you're a baby Christian, God's going to find a way to speak to you through his word. If you're a wizened third mile Christian, he's going to continue to find ways to challenge and speak to you through his word. The word is always renewed for us. However, 
Some things about the Bible hurt us more than help us. And one of the things that hurts us is the verses. The verses are not native to the Bible. When Jeremiah was speaking to the scribe Baruch, he didn't sit down and say, verse 1, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, verse 2. Like, he didn't give these little notes in there. When St. Luke and St. Paul and St. Uh, John the Evangelist were writing their books of the Bible, they weren't thinking chapter and verse. All those things were added later. And sometimes they're actually completely unhelpful to the text. Let me give you an example. In the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, there are 14 verses in a row. In Greek, it's all one sentence. It's untranslatable. You can't in English just make it work that way. But every verse makes you think it's something discreet, something separate, but it's not. The whole thing is tied together. And so the verses sometimes come between us and understanding really well. They're really helpful, and they help us to find places. They can make sure that we're on the same page when we work, but sometimes they come between us and understanding what God is trying to say to us. So, reading is good, and I want you to read your Bibles, but sometimes the formatting of our book works against us. We just have to be honest about some of these problems. So, how are we going to learn to be good readers? How do we do this? I'm going to give you a principle, a big key principle in Bible reading. The basic unit of thought is the paragraph and not the sentence. Okay? Basic unit of thought is the paragraph and not the sentence. Now, this isn't the case just in the Bible. It's the case kind of globally as readers. The thought comes in a paragraph, and the sentence fits within it. And, and we have to learn to be readers who read paragraphs and readers who understand paragraphs. And we have to read our verses in light of the stuff that comes before them and comes after them. Let me give you some examples of how this can go wrong. Uh, we'll put an image up on the screen together for a moment. It may be difficult to see. This is a daily calendar, one of these things, Thursday, July 3rd. And the verse of the day is Luke 4, 7. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Okay? That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Does anybody know who says these words? Say again. Satan. Okay. It's the devil who says these words. Now, Luke 4, 7 looks like a great verse if you just pull it out and slap it on account. I don't know if this is real. Okay. I looked at this. The, the image is maybe a little pixelated. I'm not sure. Someone may have faked it. But then again, it's possible. I imagine these things. Now, we have to understand that um, the moment we understand who said it, we realize this is not a word that we should memorize and own and pray in the same way, because it's Satan trying to tempt us to bow down to him in, a, in exchange for what? A life free of pain, a life that's not in God's will. Um, we get challenged by it. Okay, so the verse on its own doesn't help us to see these things. A similar thing happens with another verse we talk about, Philippians 4.13. Uh, you may know this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful verse, great phrases. I'm not sure how you've encountered it. Uh, maybe you were getting ready for a big exam, right? And you were studying, and you were like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? Like, I can do this, right? It's a tattooed across Terry's chest. I'm glad to know that. Don't show me. Anyway, um, and... Um, I can see, you know, there's, maybe, maybe you're going to face a big job interview. I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You've got an audition. I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? Or it's really popular with athletes, right? You can get it on T-shirts like this half basketball. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Like I can make the shot and I can, I can score the goal because Christ strengthens me. It's, you know, it's, it's a popular way to do this. Of course, the moment we go back to Philippians 4, we have to remember where is Paul when he writes this? Does anybody know? He's in jail, right? And what has he said just before this? You may not remember this. What he says just before this is, I've learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances, whether I have things or don't have things. 
whether I have what I need or don't what I have what I need, whether I'm suffering or whether I'm well, because I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, this verse is about suffering in a godly way, not about gaining the victory over our enemies. So, so we get to realize, okay, there's something, I mean, the, the, the full meaning of it is much more powerful and rewarding and rich, is it not? Because it gives us something we can hold on to. Hang on, what, what is it God is asking us to do? To be faithful in all these circumstances. Now I can be faithful because Christ strengthens me. Very different message, but we can own that. Okay? So, so we get from you know, the really wild uh, quoting Satan, we shouldn't quote Satan, not a good idea, to, uh, to quoting Paul and recognizing how we quote Paul and what this means for us. And, and I just want to say that learning to read well is an important part of our discipleship. Being formed as Christians in the world, it's very important that we learn to read well. And I want to highlight um, a couple features for this, especially in our cultural moments. So number one, reading is countercultural. Today, reading is countercultural. I like to go uh, and sit and read in some public spaces where there's enough noise where I can't hear my own thoughts and be quiet. And multiple times, strangers have come up to me and say, you know, you don't see people reading books anymore. And I think, is it really that odd to see someone reading a book? Like, do people, people only read in private, right? They hide their books. I, the idea that I would be reading a book was shocking to people. And I thought, what, what has happened to us? that the possession of a book makes people feel strange. Um, there's an article by Nicholas Carr called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? It's written in 2006. His answer was yes. His answer was yes. And the reason was is that, is that our, our internet habits have changed how we read. Instead of reading paragraphs, we skim for headlines, right? Or we, we search for keywords. We've learned ways of jumping from phrase to phrase that, that keep us from reading deeply and understanding. And it's having, it's having psychologically a detrimental effect on our attention spans. It's getting harder to sit and focus on one piece of information for any sustained amount of time. And it's because all the information we've received just comes pouring at us like a fire hydrant. It's crazy. So there's been a change in us. And so this means that reading is countercultural. If we are people who read and people who study a book and do it together on a weekly basis, this is going to transform us. We're people who think in more sustained ways. We are people with substance, people who reflect, people who are feasting regularly on things of substance that work inside us and transform us bit by bit. Um, I'm reading another book right now, a very about a group, of, uh, a group of Jews who are on their way pilgrimage to go pay a visit to the Dalai Lama. It's a true story. And they're meeting in the airport and they're looking for their other party. And one of the Jews is holding a, a large Torah scroll. And you know, the, the Torah is a very large thing. You hold it, it's in a tube, it's very visible. And, and the Torah scroll becomes the kind of beacon that gathers all these diasporic Jews from the airport. They're like, oh, we found the book. And they came together, it was a binding thing. Now, we don't have like, we don't have, I have a very big Bible in my office. I should have brought it today to threaten you and say, this is the big book. But like, we, we don't have like a big flashy book that draws us together, that's not the thing. But we are people who are drawn together by a book. But it's not the book, that, it's not the visible book, it's not this physical book, it's the book as it becomes part of our lives and manifests in our personalities and characters and how we think and choose and behave. And so that we are also gathered together by a book, and that's part of our countercultural um, reading. Second reason that reading forms us discipleship wise is that reading is missional. Is missional. Missional is a fancy uh, word for helps us to be part of the evangelistic mission of God, part of the advancement of God's kingdom on the earth. 
Now, um, the reason I say that is that soundbite people are bad exegetes of culture. If you've only got 140 characters, you are in reaction rather than in reflection. Our kind of offense-driven culture, riding the sense of outrage, the outrages that come because we have one piece of information and we're missing the broader narrative of things. How many times do you see a viral video of some person getting into trouble online and the video is com completely damning and horrifying and oh my goodness, what they've done. But then six months later, one critical piece of context comes into place and you realize that the whole narrative flips on its head. Oh, I had it wrong. Right? Soundbite, outrage culture, bad exegetes. Because we're focused on only one piece. It's like looking at the verse and missing the paragraph around it. And so when we become excellent readers like this, we become better readers of culture. And we refuse to react to the soundbites we receive. And we have to make decisions based on what's going on around us in these ways. And so people bring thoughts and phrases to you. And what you get to do if you become a better exegete is to invite them to speak the paragraph around their thought. Where's this coming from? What are you thinking? Now, a big, huge example right now is Pride Month. Right now, the language of love and acceptance is big in the air, but you get to ask questions. You can become reactive about these things, or you can say, what's the narrative that motivates them? How do you define love? What are the limits of acceptance? You could draw the person out to explain the narrative of where they're coming from, and then maybe you can have a conversation that's fruitful and not one that's reactive. So we move from being um, soundbite people to paragraph people. And paragraph evangelism is the mandate to understand the situation that gives birth to our culture rather than just targeting it and reacting to it. So it's a challenge for us. But it's all based in reading, becoming good readers of not only our book, but of the people around us and of our culture. And it's going to make us very countercultural if we are reading people in this way. So, Part of our discipleship is becoming good readers of our Bible so that we could be effective readers of culture, so that we could be effective servants of the kingdom to know where and how to bring what we know about God to bear on the society around us. This book has life in it. But if we're shallow soundbite people, we will never be able to communicate that life effectively. We have to get in it and let it get in us. And then we can bring it to the world around us and bring life to people. And that's kind of exciting. Maybe some of you have been feeling powerless, like, I don't know enough. I, don't, I can't say enough. You don't have to know that much. You just have to know the Lord who knows it all, right? And get close to him. All right. The challenge is to be paragraph Christians and now soundbite Christians, especially if we're going to address these cultural issues of our day effectively. So coming back to verses that are out of context. I've got one last example. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I received a number of cards that had a verse written in them. And it was some form, which you're probably familiar with, some form of the verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I'll put the NIV on the screen because that was the Bible verse of the day. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the, let's read it together. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What a lovely verse. It's fantastic. It's encouraging. It's good news. And I bet if we did a survey, I'd find that many of you also received graduation cards with Jeremiah 29.11 in them. Okay? Or you've done something successful in your life, and you've got, or maybe a condolence card, right? You're going through a hard time, and someone gave you a note and said, you know what? Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future, 
right? And so it's a very, uh, very well-deployed verse in many of these ways. And so it's a promise. God has big plans. Cheer up. Uh, but there are a lot of theologians and exegetes, people um, in my field, who get hot and bothered by this. Their knickers are in a twist because they think like, no, that's not how Jeremiah is using these things. And we get to ask some questions. Well, how, how do we look at this? How do we look at this? So I quote a Bible. Uh, I quote a Bible verse that promises you good things. And in your moment of pain, you attach hope on the good things that God is bringing to you. But we've been in Jeremiah for the past 20 weeks, and we've studied and looked at this together. Is that the message that Jeremiah has? Great things for you people. It's all going to be awesome. Don't feel bad. It's all good. Maybe not quite what Jeremiah has in mind. It brings, already our context brings a challenge to that. So what I want to give us is this. We're going to read Jeremiah 29 together in a minute, but the main question is what does it mean for us to read Jeremiah 29 and 11 as a verse for us? How do we read it as a verse? Because I think it is for us. How do we read it as a verse for us? That's kind of the headline question we're going to come to. So let's turn to our scripture reading. I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, the whole paragraph, right? I promised the paragraph. We're going to read the paragraph. Uh, Let me read this for us now, and then we'll talk about what I think Jeremiah has in mind. Here we go. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, here's the letter, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For, thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word for you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile." This is, we are, Jeremiah 29 and 30 and 31, this is the beating heart of the book of Jeremiah. This is the dead center of God's message to God's, this is the message of God's faithfulness, God's great faithfulness in the midst of circumstances that aren't great. And here we come to the central, central messages that we've been preaching these past couple weeks, and I believe that this message is for us. I think it's for our church. 
I think it's for a church in Western Canada dealing with issues that we're dealing with. And before I walk through these issues verse by verse for a few minutes, I want to establish more clearly how this is very much a passage for us. So first and foremost, Israel was in exile, we are in exile. Israel was in exile and we also are in exile together. Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had relocated citizens of Jerusalem to Babylon. This is part of his imperial practice, part of the empire practice of the day. What you do is when you've got recalcitrant people, people who don't want to submit, who are too tied to their land, you pluck them from their land and put them in another land, okay? You think, well, I can't, I can't if I'm going to fix this, I'm going to have to take the Jew out of Judea, right? And to try and drive the Jewishness out of the Jew, which has some uncomfortable parallels to Canadian policies for the past hundred years, doesn't it? So there's some empire issues here in terms of how you drive people and how you do things. And Jeremiah is writing a letter to those Israelites in exile. The letter is to those Israelites who've been relocated, forcibly moved to try and remove their Jewishness from them. And that's the first and most important bit of context for understanding the passage is that it's people in exile. But as I said, we also are in exile. Now, we covered this extensively last year, but I'll give you the highlights right now. We walked through, the, walked through together the book of 1 Peter. And the opening words of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, to those who reside as aliens, that's the word strangers or exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. He's writing to the church. The church is now people in exile, strangers who don't have a home, people who are scattered all over the known world, but not scattered in judgment, scattered because it's God's sovereign choice to plant you like seed in all of these places. Israelites are exiled because they received God's justice and punishment for their disobedience. We've been exiled because it's God's sovereign plan for how to reach the world. There's a change in what this exile means. The exile, Israel is exiled as punishment. The church is exiled for God's glory. And so as exiles of the world, we are expatriates of God's kingdom. Some of you know what expatriates are. Some of you don't. Expatriate is someone who visits another country to work for a time, but with the intention eventually of returning home. They don't pursue citizenship. They don't stay. They just know at some point they're going to be leaving. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you are an expatriate on the earth. You are only here temporarily. You have two citizenships. You have your local citizenship, but you have heavenly citizenship as well. And you have duties and obligations and responsibilities to that heavenly citizenship to represent that kingdom value wherever you are and in whatever you do. Kingdom expatriates. We've got our papers identifying us as God's people. We live and spend our lives in foreign lands, often hostile territory, territory that's hostile to our values and beliefs. And we are often torn between our earthly obligations and our heavenly obligations. There's tension between these things. It's not easy. And so Jeremiah's message is to a body of God's people living in exile, and the advice he gives them is advice that applies to us. I think it's advice that applies to us as well. So there's two sections to the passage. The first few verses give us commands the final verses gives us promises, and we're, gonna, we're just going to walk through these together now. What are the commands and what are the promises? So verses 4 through 9 are the commands. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's not a command yet, but it's telling you who's speaking. Who is in charge? The Lord. The Lord of hosts. So you're saying the Lord of armies. 
the Lord who has power and authority and might to do as he pleases. He's the one who's sending you this message. He's in charge here. And to whom does he speak? All the exiles, I believe, including us. We are part of this message as well. It's also clear that he's the one who exiled them. You're not out of God's control. No matter where you've been planted, you're not out of his power and control. He's still the one who's doing the sending, doing the scattering, doing the planting. Then we shift into the promises. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, what's going on? On the one hand, God is telling them, your exile's not going to be short, right? Don't live in a tent, right? Don't build a ramshackle shanty space. Build a house. You're going to be there, okay? And, uh, and also, you know, you don't plant a garden unless you're planning to be there for the harvest. So plant your garden because you're going to need to eat and think ahead and plan for your future. Establish yourself in these places. In other words, plan for the future because I'm giving you a future, right? Plan for the future because I'm going to give you one. Verse 6, take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters, take wives to your sons, give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there, and do not decrease. This is commands for planning for the future continue. Get married, make babies, cause your babies to have babies, and move on, right? Multiply. Create more people. That's good. There's a harvest in the land. There's a harvest in humanity. It's the same kind of thing. You're also planning for the future. Both are blessings. Both should be pursued. Command from verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will have welfare. Now, seek the welfare of the city is an astonishing commandment. Seek the welfare of the Babylonians who have just violently removed me from my home and destroyed everything I love. Pray for their well-being? Really? We talked about this last week with Jonah, right? Jonah fulfills his obligation to go preach at Nineveh, and then he sits on a hill waiting for God to destroy them. He's not praying for the Ninevites. He's praying for God to smite the Ninevites. And here God says, no, you're supposed to do the exact opposite. Pray for the city. Seek its welfare. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. How do these commands apply to us? Well, they are clearly commands for Israel, but they're also for us. Remember, we're in exile We're waiting for the return of Christ. Israel knew that God was going to rescue them after 70 years. This is actually the next verse. 70 years, they're going to be rescued. We don't know when Jesus is returning. Indefinite. I can imagine a group of Israelites hunkered down in Babylon, living temporary accommodation, waiting for the news that they're going back any day. I can imagine that group because I know uh, I'm connected with some Cubans in Florida who are waiting any day for the chance to go back to Cuba and repossess their family property that they lost when Castro took over. They're still waiting for it. They're going to be waiting a long time. Okay? Uh, we, we get attached. We hang on. We hunker. We know, I know Christians today who refuse to be part of the world because it's all going to be destroyed anyway. Why invest in the world? It's all, it's all going to hell, isn't it? Uh, Jeremiah seems to say you should be building houses and planting gardens, right? Different ethic. But the command to exiles is a command to us as well. Live, plant, invest, seek the welfare of the city where you've been planted. In its welfare, you will have welfare. And I should, uh, as a teaser, this is substantively what Dave's going to be talking about next week. 
How has NSAC sought the welfare of the city around us? How have we been doing this? And I'm excited to hear what he's going to say. We are told to have children, and there is no more hopeful act in our world today than to have kids. We have hope for the future, and we're going to keep having kids. The stats on millennial pregnancy are a little grim. I don't know if you followed them or followed the logic of it. For many people, how could I bring a child into a world like this? How could I do it? Right? All the uncertainty, all the economic uncertainty, all the fear of climate change and all the things that are going on. How could I? Why, it's, wouldn't it be wrong for me to bring a child into the world? And what's the Christian response? We can because we believe in a God who's sovereign and who promised good things to his world. We have hope for the future. We're not bound up in the narratives that the world has. And of course, we pray and seek the welfare of our city. We pray for our city. Every week in our church's prayers, we uphold our city's welfare. So, the command to the exiles in Babylon is a command to us as well. Live, plant, build, marry, pray, serve, love. These are our marching orders while we wait for the return of our king. The things we're supposed to do. So, we're going to get to the promises in a moment, but there's one more command, verses 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, uh, excuse me, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 29 follows logically after Jeremiah 28. No chapters in the original, but they come back to back. And 28 was the story where Hananiah, the prophet, revealed that he knew neither God's voice nor God's word. He was a false prophet. So here's the warning about false prophets comes right after confrontation with a false prophet. And there apparently are prophets in Israel saying God was going to restore them sooner. So prophets saying, don't build, don't plant, don't marry, don't seek the welfare of the city. We're going back to Jerusalem any day now. And Jeremiah says, no. And I want to identify that there are some false prophets today as well. One kind of false prophet claims to know when Jesus will return. Okay? If you encounter someone online or in print who says, I've determined when Jesus is coming back, you can close the book, hit X on the stream, throw it away. That's a false prophet. Because Jesus said, nobody knows. He says, not even I know, only the Father knows. If Jesus doesn't know, some podunk pastor doesn't know either. Okay? False prophet. So, ignore those people. Another kind of false prophet speaks about the end times in a way that nourishes fear. Oh, the end is, have you heard about the end? It's coming. All these things are happening and the wars and rumors of wars and things. And you should die. <laughs> Jeremiah says, have you built your house? Have you planted your garden? Are you seeking the welfare of the city around you? You've got to change your focus. We've been in the end times since the resurrection of King Jesus. That's when the end times started. There have been wars and rumors and wars since that time. <laughs> yeah, my instinct is the only thing that's changed is that we get more saturated with the news. But irrespective of it, irrespective of where things are in geopolitics, we have our marching orders. We know what we're supposed to be doing. Another kind of false prophet, prophet claims that Jesus is not actually returning, and so we should just fully invest in the world. Plan, plan not just for the future, plan for an eternity here on earth. In fact, there probably is no afterlife, no heaven, no restoration. This is going to be it. Also, false prophet, turn him away. And yet another kind of false prophet claims that seeking the welfare of our city means compromising our Christian convictions in order to fit in better. You can, you can prioritize your earthly citizenship over the heavenly citizenship. And you know what? Also false. 
And the word to them is the word that Jeremiah speaks. Don't let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. No. Jeremiah's got the word of the Lord. We listen to him. Okay. Let's shift into the promises. Verse 10. Thus says the Lord. When 70 years have been completed in Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. After 70 years, the average lifetime of a man, God promises to return exiled Israel to their homeland, and you know what? The promise is fulfilled. Look with me at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now in the first year, King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is there among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let, that man and let the man of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So God kept his word. After 70 years, Babylon had been defeated by the Persians, and the new king, Persian king Cyrus, was used by God to fulfill the promise. How do the promises apply to us? Well, we don't have an earthly homeland, uh, as much as some people think it might be Well, I won't name a city at the moment, but some people think earthly heaven is maybe like Santa Barbara, California, but that's okay. Um, Israel's exile was 70 years, ours um, indefinite, unknown and unknowable. Our scattering doesn't have an end date, Um, but we wait for the return of Christ's kingdom. Verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you future and a hope. So here's our verse. And there's a dual promise in the verse. On the one hand, the promise is to give a kind of prosperity to Israel within the misery of exile if they'll obey the Lord. I'm going to bless you in your exile. I'm going to give you good things in your exile, but you have to do your part. You have to be faithful in these things. On the other hand, it's a promise to restore Israel to their home if they obey the Lord. At the end of the exile, we're going to do other things for you. And like so many Bible promises, it's conditional. Conditional on obedience to Yahweh. It's also a promise of hope. I I defined this last week. Hope is knowledge of the future that gives you confidence of the present. Knowing that God has a greater plan for you, for our people, even if we don't see those promises in our lifetime, gives us confidence. We will seek his will in order to secure his blessing for our children and for our children's children and for our children's children's children. Hopeful people think generationally, right? It's not just about me getting my goods today. It's what can I do for the future? attitude of hope. Verses 12 and 13, then you will call upon me and come pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search me me with all your heart. This is a great promise, probably worth memorizing. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When Israel invests in the city where they are exiled, building, planting, having families, those acts of local obedience are part of seeking God's face because they're obeying his commands in that space. And when we obey, God will respond to our prayers. What a wonderful promise. Faithfulness leads to the presence of God. Uh, Sometimes we read this verse, 2913, as a verse for seekers, right? People who are questioning their faith. They're not quite sure. I'm not sure if God's real. And we say, well, Jeremiah 2913, if you seek him with all your heart, you're going to find him, aren't you? Uh, But as far as I can tell, this isn't a verse for seekers. It's a verse for Christians, 
This verse for people who are on the inside. Not, not a challenge for, if you just work hard enough, you'll find God. Don't worry. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's saying, if you're faithful and obey, you will see God face to face. And then verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place where I sent you into exile. The final promise is that God will bring his people back, and he does, but only provisionally. They come back, but only part of them come back. They return, but the new temple is not as good as the old one. And they're back, but they're never a sovereign country again. They've always got an overlord power over them. And the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, verse 14, only happens in the church of Jesus Christ, where God has gathered people from every tongue, tribe, nation, to be joined by the power of His Holy Spirit to serve as ambassadors in the kingdom of God until He returns to reign with power. That's the real fulfillment of this verse. Okay, let's wrap up. How is Jeremiah 29.11 a verse for us? First, it's a verse for the whole church, not for individuals. I know the plans I have for you is plural, the Texas y'all. I know the plans I have for y'all, right? God intends to prosper a community. It's not a private promise of blessing for you, okay? And he wants to do something for us as a whole. And that's one of the first things I think we have to see. And he's going to prosper us for his glory. But prosperity may not look like the world's definition of prosperity, And he may not prosper you in your lifetime. He may use your obedience to prosper people who aren't even a twinkling in your imagination yet. Because when we serve the king, we're outside of the world's ideas of what success and failure are, aren't we? It doesn't look the same. So plans to prosper you may mean plans to prosper people through you at your expense, right? And that could be painful. And the most precious resource we have, of course, is the presence of the living God who grants us this hope. The second thing about the promise is that it's a verse that captures the promise of hope. It reassures us that God is ultimately good. He is good. And that ultimately we are never going to stop being exiles in this world. You'll never be fully at home. And that's part of it as well. And it calls us to reorient our lives towards his kingdom and its values. And with that being said, I think there are a few passages that apply to our church more than this. I know the plans I have for you all, plans for hope and a future, plans to give you things and do things for you, do things through you for your city. But there are things we have to do as well. We turn at this time to the meal of Holy Communion together, uh, which is wonderful. And I just want to say a few words about this and then um, get us ready to go. Uh, If you recognize your exile status in the world, if you recognize that you are a citizen of God's kingdom people, then you are invited to partake of this feast with us today. If you feel like, I've got my papers, then this is a feast for you. Um, It's simple bread, and it's simple juice. Um, There's nothing special or spectacular about um, the, the material elements that are here in front of us. But on the night Jesus was betrayed, he transformed it into something more where he said that when we take of this, we are part of his mission in the world. Uh, Like the Passover lamb, where the Israelites ate of the lamb and became one people, and the blood of the lamb spread over the door frames of their houses meant that judgment passed over them. Now we partake of this bread and this juice in a similar way to say that we are God's people and that God's judgment has passed over us. It's a declaration of the good news of what Christ did. 
And so God's meal binds us together. This bread and wine reminds us that Christ has died for our sins and that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we declare ourselves to be his people, living in exile, loving his world, and serving his kingdom until he returns. I'm gonna invite our servers to come up and take their places. I'm also gonna invite our musicians uh, to come to the platform. And let me explain how things are gonna work for us in a minute before I pray. So, uh, as I said, there is, uh, there's bread here and there is juice. And what you're gonna do is come forward and one of the servers will tear off a piece of bread and place it in your hand, say, this is the body of Christ which is given for you, given. Um, it says in John that not one of his bones will be broken, so the bread isn't broken for you, it's given for you. And they'll place it in your hand, you can receive it, and you take it, and then you place the bread and you dip it in the cup, not your fingers, just the bread, um, and you'll say, um, the cup holder will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you or shed for you. And we remind ourselves that Jesus has given his body and his life so that we can have life and that we could be one people gathered together around him. Um, if you are not ready to receive, but you'd like a blessing, you're welcome to come forward and we will pray for you. We'll say just a quick blessing upon you. Uh, if you, are in, if you are, have gluten concerns, we have a separate uh, set of crackers and, and a separate juice that we can serve you uh, so that you can partake as well in these ways. Okay? So uh, let me pray for us, and then we will have some music, and you can come for communion. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you died, that you rose again, and that you've given us these gifts as a way to call us to you. I pray your blessing upon this meal, this ministry time, and the sense of our love for our city and our obedience to your commands, Lord Jesus. These things I pray and ask in your name. Amen.